0: Well, hello. Welcome back to Between the Lines Recovery. I'm Jay Lind, and I'll be your host. This is episode 38 of the podcast. And today, I will be interviewing Casey. This is my first interview on the podcast in quite some time, but uh I am very excited to to get into it and learn a little bit more about Casey's story. And uh, so I'm not going to mess around with too much talk here before we get started. But it would be a shame if I didn't first give you some good news. So without further ado, this is the good news. The good news, as always, is brought to you by OnStage. OnStage is a theater outreach and audience development program It collaborates with several colleges in and around the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Onstage uses teaching artists to facilitate in-class discussions about the relevant social, political, and cultural issues that seem to bubble up in these plays that are currently running in local theaters. What an incredibly worthwhile and awesome mission it is to broaden the range, reach, and impact of some of these truly incredible and thought-provoking works of art. To learn more about Onstage or to make a donation to the cause, check them out at OnstageMN.org. That's OnstageMN.org. Tell them Jay sent you. You'll go a long way over there at Onstage. Just you try it. So there are two good news stories for you this week. I couldn't resist. So the first one comes from the great state of California, where Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill banning school book bans in California. I like that one because it says banning book bans. It's a ban against bans, a ban of bans. And I think that's funny, but also a really great new law that um, bans censoring textbooks that tackle racial or LGBTQ plus issues uh, in the schools. So I think that's a, a huge deal, um, and it's long overdue, and hopefully other states will will follow up uh, on California's lead. The next good news story comes from New Jersey. Uh, I think it's our first good news story from New Jersey, um, where Princeton University will start offering free tuition for students whose families make less than $100,000 um they had a a similar scholarship um program before this but uh only for families that made up to sixty-five thousand dollars. so now starting in the fall students whose families make a hundred thousand dollars or less will have all of their expenses covered Uh, and the university also added increased financial aid for those making between a hundred thousand and three hundred thousand dollars per year it's a small step um but i think it's a good one towards um making you know some of these elite universities and colleges um more accessible to more people so good on you princeton university keep it up all right that's enough of the good news let's get to the interview already so my guest today is casey uh casey and i met on the sidelines of uh one of my boys games and not too long ago and then uh shortly after that she came across the podcast and my book and eventually we connected uh via the the interwebs and uh after hearing a little bit of her story i came to the quick conclusion that uh she'd be a great guest on the podcast um i think our stories have a many similarities but i also feel that way of just about everyone who shares in any AA meeting I go to. But there's some specific ones I think we'll hear about in our stories that are similar. Uh, and also, she seems silly and fun and honest and easy to talk to. So uh, those are all the things I'm looking for in a in a guest to be on the podcast. So uh, without further ado, let me introduce you to Casey. Casey, welcome to the podcast. How are you feeling today?
1: Thank you, Jay. I'm so happy to be here. I'm feeling great today, every day. And um just really glad that we connected.
0: Yes, me too. You said great yeah. every day. That's that's amazing. I am uh... well. I need to learn I need to learn some more about your story <laughs> to, Uh get some of that. I was also uh very happy that we came across each other. And uh one of the things that struck me about your story right away, once we once you shared a little bit of it, is uh like me, it seems like you feel You don't fit that stereotype of what an an addict or an alcoholic, uh, what their life is like, what they look like, uh, what people might think of, you know. So on the show, I often talk about, uh, you know, we're not always like, uh, you know, people imagine the the guy under the bridge with a paper bag, you know, a bottle in a paper bag or a junkie shooting up in an alleyway or something like that. When uh, here you are. Well, it's just the sport might not have been soccer, but you're a soccer mom, uh, you know, basically. Yeah, but basically, like a soccer mom in the suburbs, it's a stereotype and it's absolutely wrong. <laughs> you know, like the, that's we, right. We come in all, in all shapes and sizes, just like there's no stereotype for the kind of person who has cancer. Uh, we just have a different disease, and it, and uh, and you said like in your first message to me, like uh, we're everywhere, uh, and, and that's true, we are. But before getting all that, I want to start. I like to get started. I like to look back as far as we can go, and I like to hear people's kind of origin story. So. Where did your, your, your drinking uh, or drug use or whatever, when did it start? Uh, like what, what's your first experience and memory with it? And, and, uh, and then we can kind of work our way up to today.
1: That's right. Yeah. So not only am I, you know, a soccer mom, but I'm a soccer mom, as I shared with you, who grew up with every advantage great parents, a great childhood. There was no significant trauma. There was nothing in my life that would indicate that alcohol was going to take over my life. I will tell you, um, when I was growing up, I was very aware that we had alcoholism in our family. Mm. It was not anything I had witnessed. It was my great grandparents' generation on both sides. But because of that, my grandparents were teetotalers. Anybody who drank alcohol was a bad person. And therefore, my mother, she didn't have her first glass of wine until she was in her 30s. And my father was not very interested in alcohol. He had a brother who had suffered from alcoholism. So it was just not present in my life. But it was also looming as this very bad thing that people could do. And so, like I said, you know, I grew up in a, in a home without alcohol. So when I became a teenager to rebel, of course, that was the most natural thing I was going to do was the thing that I was told was really bad. So, ooh, there we go. That's what I'm going to look, look into. So, you know, I started drinking probably at the age of regular high schoolers. Um, and I can look back now and see attitudes around my alcohol consumption that are not typical. But at the time, I didn't know it it was certainly a way for me to look, you know, rebellious and to look um, dangerous. And, you know, in my little sleepy suburban community, um, you know, I could break rules and, you know, and then when I went to college and I had freedom, of course, then I could, you know, I didn't even have to hide it from my parents anymore. So I was always a drinker. I always loved to drink. As you mentioned, I'm a silly person. I'm a goofball. And it gave me um, an atmosphere where it was okay to be nutty. And people just kind of accepted that as the drinking part. Um, so I was always the, I was always the girl at the fraternity who could do the longest headstand. <laughs> that was like, that was me, you know, just the goofball. And, you know, it was part of my identity was how much I could drink. Yes. Yeah. That,
0: so that part, a, a, that all sounds like almost exactly like my, my like introduction to drinking, I guess, right. When I got to college, I knew like, Oh man, uh, my friends and I in, in the suburb where we grew up which is the one uh where you live <laughs> uh yes uh, we drank I, I got to college and realized oh that's not normal we drank way more than like I, everyone else who was who we were meeting at school and we went to the university of wisconsin where that's where a lot of you know a lot of uh good good college uh, drinking happens so then i realized it was a lot like a lot of binge drinking but the rest it seems very similar at the time i didn't yeah. figure it out i didn't think anything was crazy and certainly around me Uh, I wasn't standing out as somebody uh, drinking much more than anybody else. I liked it. It made me, I felt like you like kind of made me funny or it's just kind of like fun and having fun. And I wasn't hiding from anything. I didn't think I was or anything.
1: Sorry. And I surrounded myself as I'm sure you did with other drinkers, Right. right? You know, that's, that's how we made sure that we weren't more out of control than the next guy. Right. Um, You know, was, that's where I built my social circle was other people who like to binge drink, other people who love to party and who, you know, thought thought that was, you know, the way to do college. And so, yeah, you know, yeah, I think I think I made a choice about the the atmosphere I created for myself.
0: Yeah. To and whether that that's consciously or subconsciously, I think that a lot of us do that. Like you keep keeping a group that makes you feel normal, too. You know, like, the- yeah,
1: there must have been somebody on that giant campus who, you know, wasn't <laughs> drinking every day. But those weren't the people I wanted to hang out with.
0: That's right. Uh, so even looking back and now being in a in a healthy recovery and being sober, even looking back at that time, you don't feel you don't see anything like from high school and college that you were like, there was some kind of something, a feeling that you were escaping from. Was there social anxiety? Was there, uh, you know, something that you were kind of, any, you know, trying to escape from or distract yourself from? I mean,
1: I really don't think so. I think, you know, from a from an outsider's perspective, I wasn't doing anything that my friends weren't doing. But I now understand that, you know, there was again, there was just an attitude around it, Mm -hmm. that it was so much of my identity, that I was the partier. I was the crazy girl. I was the one who could fall down the fraternity house steps and not get hurt you know, or I could, you know, I didn't, I didn't get sick in people's rooms. I didn't, yeah. you know, I could handle my liquor yeah. and I was fun. So not at that point, I don't feel like I was escaping anything. I really don't. Yeah. It was a, it was a golden time. Right.
0: Yeah. I, I feel that way too. I, I think I, I can look back now and see, you know, there was a little bit, like I was starting to build some guilt and shame, but it was based on a lot of it was based on my, my drinking back then. I think I was, I was feeling guilty. And then that later on, that turned into something that I was, escaping from but back then it really was just i want you know just having fun um mm-hmm. which lends some credence to the like the 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 genetic theory or you know the, the the predisposition is that um here's two of us having a conversation who when we started drinking uh you know in high school in college weren't escaping from trauma uh didn't have uh you know we had a supportive family and community and all the resources one person could could ever dream to have, and uh, both of us ended up in a in a bad place. Uh, you know, thirty years later, um, due to drinking or drug use. Um, so it is, you know. There's a, there's many people who believe what well, it's all addiction and alcoholism come from trauma, right? That it's it's. Uh, so this would be these would be two examples that it doesn't. Maybe trauma. That's right. Maybe maybe trauma um, provides some kind of spark for it to spiral out of control, which we'll get to shortly. I think. Yes, right. Both of our stories. Uh, yeah. But that that but that the bug is in us early, and then the trauma uh, in our cases, uh, some kind of traumatic event or adversity, uh, ha- makes it show its ugly face. Um, but in the beginning, it wasn't like man. I felt uncomfortable around people. And when I drank, I felt better. I felt pretty good around people all the time. uh, And I just wanted to keep partying. Sounds like that. Yeah.
1: And I was incredibly high functioning. I had good grades. I, you know, held an office in my sorority. You know, I, on the surface, have always, you know, been able to maintain a presence of being in control yeah. and um, I think another thing we might share in common that that you don't even know about is that I when I went to high school, both of my parents were teachers there. So <laughs> I was in the spotlight a lot. So I really <laughs> learned how to make things look shiny and perfect on the outside no matter what I was going through. Yeah. So even when I was drinking, I was always able to maintain that sense of if other people are watching me, do I look okay right now? Yeah so I think part of it was just being in- exhausting <laughs> exhausting. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, that's true. And uh, yeah, that that comes up a lot on the podcast, too, is that we're we're all like really good at covering our tracks and making it not yes. v- noticeable to other people. And the first thing people always ask me is, well, didn't your friends know? Didn't your wife know? Didn't your mom know? Didn't your family know? I'm like, no, then we would have had to stop. See? <laughs> <laughs> like, right. is, that's silly. We had to protect it. And uh, even from the people that, you know, we live with and Yes. So eventually there's no hiding you know eventually you know they're on to you uh at some point or maybe they're on to you they you're not saying anything but they're but they're on to you um yeah yeah I I was the same way you know uh made it through school the grades were good and uh functioning and you know had a good job graduate degree and you know teaching high school teaching uh five classes a day five five live shows a day full of teenagers uh that's not easy when you're sober as a skunk but uh, certainly the way I was feeling, I can't believe that I did it, uh, at all. Uh, yeah. for for that long. Um, all right. So then when, when, so then that's through in, in college. So then talk about, uh, how it amped up kind of what, uh, what and when did it start to become more than just you're the party girl?
1: Yeah. So after college, um, you know, I moved to Chicago and continued the partying and it's where I re-met my husband and, you know, we were living a great life. We were married, but we had no kids. We were traveling. Drinking was part of our love language, was, you know, going on vacation and overserving ourselves. And it was just something that was part of our lives. And we hooked up with another couple who were great friends of ours. Um, and the four of us would travel and drink and go to, you know, events together and had such a good time. And the woman in that group, uh, she was the first person who taught me to hide alcohol.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: she would come over with three bottles of wine and we would when we you know got to the to open the third she would take the other two and and put them under the kitchen sink and say mm-hmm. oh that way when the guys come home they won't know we drank three bottles they'll think it's just this one and some that that flipped a switch in me and i said mm-hmm. oh wait so i don't even have to like you know own up to the recycling i can (laughs) i can put this bottle somewhere else and that was the beginning of when i started to have some deception around the amount that i was drinking Mm -hmm. um so i look at definitely that period of time as you know a bit of a change then um i had children i had no problem not drinking while i was pregnant that was not a big deal but then as soon as i you know had my children i was working full-time we don't have family around there was so much pressure the you know i really leaned into that mommy wine and culturally everybody told me that that was okay that it was wine time and i could buy a t-shirt with that was bedazzled with a wine and it says <laughs> mommy time you know i was like okay this is how yeah. i survive these difficult years with young children mm-hmm. is that i anesthetize um in the evenings after work and you know that quantity that i was consuming just got got bigger and bigger and, you know, had to buy more and more wine. And, you know, that was really where it started. And again, then I, then I learned that, you know, I could hide that bottle so that maybe my husband didn't realize that my Sauvignon Blanc was, I was on number two
0: or, you know, we all. Blancs.
1: (laughs) That's right. We all love to talk about the days we would drink boxed wine, right? Because then nobody can see what's in the box. And (laughs) so I realized that my behavior from the outside was gross looking I realized that I had a glass of wine in my hands at all times in the evenings with my children all the time. So I decided this isn't how I want my kids to grow up. I'm going to stop drinking wine in front of them, I'm going to stop drinking in front of people, in front of my children. You know, that's what I'm going to do. So So then, of course.
0: Hold on. Hold on. So this is great. I just want to guess where this is going that you thought the healthy thing was to do would be to just start drinking alone. Correct. Correct. This seemed like an excellent
1: parenting (laughs) strategy. Yes. My children will not be affected by my drinking if they don't see it.
0: Yes. Just drink alone. So, right.
1: (laughs) That's right. So, that's when my drug of choice turned from wine to vodka. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all believe that's the thing you can't smell. And I, right. So, so I started just, you know, really medicating myself with vodka, and because I had to maintain a level of responsibility with a full-time job and children and whatever, it I kind of just started spreading it out. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit of alcohol all the time. I was not having big episodes of, you know, blackouts or anything like that. It was just kind of a constant drinking.
0: Yeah, like maintenance. Of, it was like maintenance.
1: maintenance, but right a lot of Mm -hmm. vodka, right? (laughs) So there were, there were times where if you did an inventory of my home, you know, there'd be a handle in the laundry basket, you know, a handle in the garage, a handle in my nightstand drawer. Mm -hmm. It got to the point where it literally, I had to drink um, constantly to stay physically okay, because the withdrawals would start to kick in Eat, you know, at first it was just, you know, if I got too sober, I'd, I'd get anxious or I'd start yeah. to feel guilty. Right. But then the quantity continued to rise and it became much more physical. I would shake. I would, um, you know, I would forget things. I would feel fuzzy headed. And so it just became the only way I could survive was by being a little bit drunk all the time.
0: Yeah, so that's the thing that I think also that a lot of people don't understand, and I didn't fully understand until I went to inpatient rehab, um, because uh, alcohol wasn't my drug of choice. Of course, I drank plenty, uh, but it was cocaine. And cocaine, the physical addiction to cocaine is like done in two days. Like any withdrawal symptoms are short lived, and not that the physical withdrawal. It's a habitual withdrawal that's hard, and the guilt and shame is like you know unmatched by, by by any other. But Yes. I when I saw for the first time, my first two days in in, uh, inpatient when we're going through going like the detox unit and watching people withdraw from alcohol, I'm like, oh, shit, the physical effects of this disease uh, for alcohol and opiates uh, in particular are like unbelievable and so scary and, and lethal, if not done under the right conditions that you have to drink to not die in some cases. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And certainly to not feel like some kind of awful, awful, eventually so sicker than you've ever either die or feel like you're about to die. Uh, yes. And that you drink just to stop the hands from shaking, the stomach from turning, the mind from spinning um, and and then eventually from convulsing and dying um that's right so I feel incredibly grateful that I didn't have to deal with any of that uh it was just I I had to keep using to make the guilt and to shame disappear for a minute
1: yes but
0: Mm -hmm. I I have those physical symptoms so now you have to main, you have the maintenance vodka all day long uh and you got handles all over the house um and now is guilt are there is there some guilt and shame building underneath that
1: absolutely and you know You can only rationalize that that behavior in the bathroom mirror in the morning so often, you know, until you start to realize like this is not normal behavior Mm -hmm. and it's not it's not working anymore. It's it turned against me. It used to be my friend and my crutch and my support. And then all of a sudden it was the enemy and I did not know how to escape it. I had many deep staring contests with myself in the bathroom mirror saying, you know, what is happening to you? What, where have you gone? And how on earth are you going to get yourself out of this? And again, you know, when you do have those physical symptoms, you know, as it's really hard because even in moments where I felt strong and clear enough to say, this has to stop, I physically could not stop.
0: Yeah, your body's on your dough. you can't.
1: And the, that's when the part of me gave up and said, well, this is, you know, screw it, screw it. I'm just going to drink myself down to the drain. People will be better off without me anyway, because mm-hmm. I'm a disaster. Some people were sort of on to me. A lot of people still weren't.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
1: you know, that's when I just sort of became very hopeless that yeah. I don't see a way out of this.
0: Yeah, so that that feeling... Uh, especially because, you know, as you say, you, you, you know, now there was a way out of it. it is an easy way out of it. I'm mean, not easy, but there's a, there's a, a way out of it. All you had to do is say something and you would have had a way out of it. You could have gone, you know, you could have been in rehab and had a way out, but we don't even, we don't even hear, hear that thought. But also you just said, you went from hopeless, sad, people would be better off without me. And your story started with, I was the life of the party. I was happy. That's right. Everyone's happy. So from that, from that feeling, like I just want to party all the time. And with alcohol to look at yourself in the mirror with alcohol going, people would be better off without me in a matter. That's of- right. Whatever. I mean, that is. And
1: I think every morning when I opened my eyes, my first thought was, I wish I was dead. I feel so crappy. This I know what this day ahead holds for me, which is more drinking and trying to balance and trying to get through it. And I just I wish I didn't have to wake up this morning yeah and not in not in terms of suicidal ideations but yeah. in just that kind of despair that mm-hmm. desperation that feeling and god i don't miss that at all
0: no me neither and and meanwhile on the surface and on paper your life looks pretty great
1: yeah i was so still from yes outside, look-
0: from the outside your life looks pretty great you got a, you got a job you got a family uh you're living in a great place and you got a house and you're eating and and all those things you have friends but inside uh you're you're suffering and on the outside you're putting a smile on your face and that that's right I, from my experience i know is absolutely exhausting and just makes the yeah. next day even harder to to yeah. feel one way and act the opposite of that all day long that's right
1: and when the smile began to crack and i started dropping balls you know not paying bills on time um doing things that were inappropriate at work or, you know, just not being a little bit drunk all the time, but being rather drunk all the time. Um, You know, that was a, there was definitely a point where I started to see the consequences outside of Mm -hmm. um, you know, the things that were going on inside of me. And I did, you know, I did mess some things up. I know I screwed up our finances and um, I decided to leave a job I had been at for 18 years because you know, in some drunken moment, I thought maybe it was part of the problem. Maybe if yeah. I got a fresh start at a new company, I would be a little bit in more in control. And, you know, you look for all of the outside reasons that this yeah, might be, be happening to yeah. you.
0: It can't be you. It couldn't possibly it be It
1: couldn't you, right? possibly have been Everybody me.
0: loves you. So it must be this damn job or the boss or, That's the, right. or the city I live in. You know, like I always say about the geographic changes, people yeah, alcoholics and addicts go. I'm just going to move cities. That'll change it. Like, you know, guess what? They got vodka in Denver too. That's right. Um, that's right. All right. So then, that so that's building, and it doesn't. You're not showing any signs of that coming to an end. You're like at this maintenance phase where you're, uh, you know, barely holding on. Um, but then, uh, there's something, something bigger and worse, kind of tips the scale. That's right. I want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, again, um, you know, this is something that we have in common that um, I adored my parents, wonderful, wonderful people. And my father um, was diagnosed. He was a very, very healthy man. He was an old man who rollerbladed and, (laughs) you know, jet skied and would do anything. And he always took great care of his health. He always exercised. He prided himself on um, keeping himself fit. And he was diagnosed with a kind of blood cancer that they gave him a year to live. And he made the choice to not treat that cancer because the prognosis was not good. He didn't want to put my mom through a lot of medical things. He knew what was, you know, what was in the cards for him and he decided to accept it. And he did ask for our permission to do that, which we gave him. But that was, you know, when the rug came out from under me and I just, I did not know what to do with this information. And that's when the avoidance drinking Mm -hmm. really came in, right? I could pretend it wasn't happening if I was drunk enough to, um, you know, to just put it to the side. So the year that he spent dying, I was just obliterated Mm -hmm. um, to not feel that, to not own up to it, to not look it in the eye, to not recognize it. And at one point, I remember saying to myself, you are not going to be drunk at your father's funeral. Mm-hmm. you will not do that so get your act together um and sure enough I was drunk at my father's funeral
0: of course you were yeah there's I mean I I, I would have just taken a bet right there I would have called Vegas to bet that that, yeah. that promise to yourself wasn't going to come true you know because that right there if if you could have asked for help before that moment then you're stronger than the rest of us like you got to get That was, that's, that's like the catalyst right there that the hope is after that is when you get, you see some kind of, you know, breaking point. Um, I know that's how it was for me. Uh, yeah, God, that is like almost just like, you know, some kind of mirror image of my, of my experience with my dad too, you know, that I was kind of holding on there and getting by, but for me, it sounds like for you, uh, it's the first bit of real adversity in your life. Yes. Right. So, yes, uh, I mentioned this also in the introduction of my book that there's some s- saying I, f- I think it's uh, I've looked it up a few times. I don't know where where how I first heard it, but it, it it's an African proverb. In some cases I read it. It comes from somebody else. But geez, no, uh, safe seas don't make strong smooth seas don't make strong. <laughs> Whew, I got it. There it There's a lot of experts. No, and honestly, don't make them. And that if if we're in smooth seas all the time. Uh, then, when the waves start coming, we don't know what to do, and we capsize. And it was twenty right. years old, and my dad got sick and died, and my boat just flipped over. you know yes. uh, and i didn't I didn't know what to do. I didn't have I didn't have any skills at all, and I was already, you know, drinking too much and using drugs. Uh, yeah. So that's when it really, like like you said, you know, like same with you. that's when you that's when the real escape drinking or avoidance drinking uh, began.
1: Yes. And it, it's an interesting time when somebody is dying because you're not, you're not really doing the grief quite yet. It's different shapes. You know, if somebody dies and you grieve that loss, that that's something that I was familiar with, you know, conceptually. But when he was dying, I didn't know how to walk around the world and process what that was. And I didn't know, you know, I didn't seem there was a club for that. And, you know, it was just an incredibly difficult time to yeah. know how to function.
0: And I and uh, in that situation that you had with your dad and very similar in my, with my dad, that you knew he was going to die in, in about a year. Like, yeah, we had this kind of time frame. There wasn't like a, any hope like, oh, this might go away or maybe he's the part of the 10 percent that the treatment works. Your dad was having no yeah. treatment. My dad's was clearly just to see if we could make it last a year kind of treatment. So you're forced to go like your, your dad's about to die and you got to look at him all the time. What are you gonna yeah. do? And also during that time and post, uh, you know, after my dad died, uh, during this time we're supposed to be grieving. It's very acceptable to to drink too much and uh, and or escape with in other ways. Where people, you don't ha- you don't have to hide as much. It's like you get right. you get like carte blanche. And I took advantage of that. Like, of course, like whew, finally, I yes. don't have to I don't have to lie as much. People think I'm just sad about my dad dying. Uh, right and and there's so much more and you can't you can't grieve while you're drunk and high no you aren't aren't grieving I've I you know I got I postponed it for a long time let's get to that so then let's get you let's get to the part where 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 uh you start getting some help we got this the podcast supposed to be about positivity and hope and I right right we're both smiling people can't see this but we're smiling the whole time as we're telling this this pretty sad, sad part of the, of our stories. Uh, but it's, we're smiling because we know that uh, it's kind of happy. Uh, it's about to take a happy turn. Um, and we both are feeling. That's right. No, we we, we know, we like know that. it has
1: a good ending.
0: Yeah. And it doesn't feel it. I can smile because as you talk about it, I can remember how bad I felt during that time of my life and how yeah. much better I feel right now. That's right. That's um, right. All right. So what got you through the doors into some kind of treatment for the first time? Spoiler alert. It won't be just yeah. spoiler alert
1: the first time. Yeah. You know, it was always me. It was always me having a moment where I really would just fall apart and collapse and say to my husband, I think I need help. I think Mm -hmm. I need something's got to happen. I think I need help. And so he is a wonderfully supportive guy who is excellent with operational things. So he, um, you know, immediately at first found me a bed in a detox facility. And I truly believed that if I got it physically out of my system, Mm -hmm. I would have a blank slate and I would never find myself in this same alcoholic conundrum again. Mm -hmm. So I did five days of miserable. Like you said, it is awful. Um, Even medically assisted, it was rough to get that, you know, those are very, very blurry days for me. I don't remember a lot of specifics. I don't remember details of it because I was kind of a wreck. Um, when I emerged from that detox clinic, I did not think I was an alcoholic. Um, I thought I had made some bad choices and gotten myself into a sticky situation and that I could, I could course correct. And of course that only lasted for a few months.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then I found
1: myself Back in that situation, again, and worse, right? right. And absolutely worse. Absolutely so the next worse. time, yeah, Very the second quickly. time,
0: once you go, you get help or get some kind of detox, get some treatment, get something. And the next time, first of all, they, they, they often say, or I hear, I have heard in rehab and meetings, you know, like your alcoholism or your addiction, uh, while you're not drinking, it's doing pushups. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's strong. you. you take the first drink is now, you know, you're doing it. You're starting clean sober. And right away, that's why they say AA sometimes ruins drinking for people. Like, now you're going to go back out there and start drinking. And you're feeling even more guilty because now you know exactly what you're doing. And it's all your fault because you picked up the first one. Uh, So now it goes, it usually, I'm going to guess, it skyrockets right back to where you left off pretty quickly.
1: Bad. So it was not not a long period of time until I was saying I needed help again. Mm -hmm. um, Because the wheels fell off so fast and so completely that you know I was able to ask for help a second time. And once again, I did a five day detox and thought maybe if I just changed my mindset again, then that would be, you know, a solution. But uh, you know, again, I just repeated the same thing that hadn't worked the first time, did it mm-hmm. the second time, did an uncomfortable detox in a facility, and then came back and, you know, maybe made it six months, nine months mm-hmm. without drinking. But I was really like, it, you know, it was, I was hanging on by my fingernails. It was yeah, so very was that unpleasant. Just detox I wanted no, to drink.
0: Was it just detox and no meetings or anything? Just, you just detoxed no. and then white knuckled it.
1: White knuckled it. And I wanted to drink. Oh my goodness. I wanted to drink yeah, so badly. Every day. And so I did. And it's, you know, just so interesting. You, you think back to those moments, or at least I do, of when I picked up again. And, you know, just the autopilot that, you know, my brain went on that mm-hmm. somehow tricked myself into believing that, that it was okay to maybe just have one or two and just not taking into account at all how my body would physically react to that and just want more and more and more. And it was never, it could never be a little for me. It just yeah. didn't work because yeah. by the time I, you know, had had that one, I said I would have, my brain was in a different place and it yeah. that brain was saying two is fine. And after two, that- you know two wine brain was saying you know heck the night's already gone
0: yep yes
1: just lean into it
0: yep i had a uh so. i had a uh a counselor at one of my stints in outpatient rehab who used to just say uh i'm gonna do an impression of her her name is char she's the greatest and she'd say just don't pick up just, just don't, don't pick up because we were all in there and sober at the time and the truth is if you don't pick up the first one you're good yes but after you pick that one up that's when you're powerless right so that's all right. you got to do and she just made it so and i used to laugh I'm like shut it! Don't, don't tell me just don't drink or just don't do cocaine i get it but now when i think about it i'm like oh she's just breaking it down the most simple terms just don't pick yes. one up once you do yes and then she would say something along those lines like don't come crying to me or whatever she was kind of a tough love yes. counselor uh because yeah. after that once you pick the first one up no, you can't stop without help. That's like right. you can't, you can't do it. You're, it's, it's. You got no chance. That's so. Right. Then what's the next step?
1: So I fell apart again, and this time, you know, I, I said this is the crazy train. I can't just keep going to rehab for five minutes, and, um, you know, and then coming back and starting all over again. So I committed to a 28 day, um, inpatient program. The hardest part for me was leaving my kids. You know, mm-hmm. what kind of selfish monster am I that I'm going to leave my my small children for a month to go, you know, take care of my, you know, inner demons or whatever. It was really hard for me to think that I deserved that time and deserved that help.
0: And that um, your kids right- deserved that time and deserve that help, right? That's, That's right. I mean, problem. I look at you it now. It. Yeah. I was so selfish to go heal myself from this disease that was going to kill me yes. and leave my kids without a mom. How that's right. And that's what would have
1: happened. That's <laughs> yes. absolutely the path exactly. I was on. There's no question about that. So right before I went to um, to that facility, I have a neighbor who had told me that he had stopped drinking. I hadn't realized it was a problem for him and was telling about his experience in AA and how much he had enjoyed making a new network of friends and he had this new lease on life. And so I was, I was very drunk. And right before I was scheduled to go into rehab, I stumbled down the block and knocked on his door. And his wife answered the door and there I was all disheveled and drunk. And she turned over her shoulder and said, honey, I think this is for you. <laughs> and uh, he came to the door and he just grabbed me by the wrist and pulled me into his house and said, what, what's happening? And I said, I'm going to a facility. And he said, take these with you. And he pressed into my hand his copy of the 12 and 12 and his copy of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, you're going to have some time on your hands. Here's some good reading for you. So I did go to the facility, um, checked in. Unfortunately, when I went to check into my 28-day program, the last thing they did with my physical check-in was a breathalyzer. And when I blew into that, they could not believe that I was standing in front of them as drunk as I was. But, you know, I had lipstick on and my bag was packed. I mean, (laughs) it looked like I had it all together. So they promptly sent me off to an emergency room Mm -hmm. where I believe is where I experienced my personal bottom was Mm. i had been put on a gurney in a suburban hospital emergency room and there were real injuries around me people coming in who had been in car accidents or you know who had injured themselves and here i am a drunk middle-aged woman on a gurney just taking up space in a place that it was not meant for me um and that I remember a, an intern walked by and said, what's up with the lady in bed 19? And they said, she's a drunk. She's sleeping it off. And that to me was my bottom.
0: Mm-hmm. That How
1: I went from a happy, successful, carefree, grateful human being to the woman sobering up, um, you know, on that bed in a in an ER. That was where that, I just, just was, didn't recognize at all who I was.
0: And you heard someone else say <laughs> it. I think so. It sounds like you remember that verbatim. Like, what's verb beta in in bed 19? You know, like, it's a drunk sleeping. You just heard someone call you a drunk, they you heard it out loud, uh, and it and uh, and in in that moment, too, where you probably don't remember a whole lot of else going, but you remember that moment.
1: I remember that sounds
0: like a pretty crystal clear bottom to to me, too. Yeah,
1: so they detoxed me and sent me back to the 28 day program where I said I am going to do everything in my power while I am here I am going to swallow every word I am going to drink all the Kool-Aid I am going to throw myself in the hands of this program and I am going to make it work and as you've probably experienced you know you're not necessarily with other soccer moms right I was with people who had drug addictions of all flavors kinds people of all walks of life and these become you know your fellow soldiers in the war and regardless of what our backstories life- stories are
0: and it happens and like instantly, like you become instantly. brothers in war brothers and sisters in war in a matter of minutes. Like that person who looks nothing like you, who's, who's, who's had a life that seems so foreign to you suddenly becomes your like confidant and your someone you trust as much as anyone else. As soon as yes. you hear a bit of their story, you go, oh God, someone else. Someone yes, like me. we are the same. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, so and also
1: became very aware that there were many people who's consequences were much, much larger than mine. People who were there court mandated, people who had um, injured people while drunk driving and were gonna have to leave the facility and face the consequences of having grievously injured other people. Um, you know, people who didn't have family support. There, I, I realized I had so many advantages from my seat in that rehabilitation center that I needed to make the most of it. I needed to pick myself up and dust myself off And near the end of that rehab, I attended an an AA meeting in that facility. And it was people came in from the outside to hold the meeting. And I just remember thinking, I want what they have. These are the most joyful alcoholics I have ever (laughs) seen in my life. And their message to me was that you cannot do it without a program, you can't just go out there in the world. And not have, you know, a system to sort of put yourself into. That's not how your mind works. You need, you need the support. Um, And so I made the commitment at that point as repugnant as Alcoholics Anonymous Mm -hmm. seemed to me, everything stereotypical about, you know, be calling myself an alcoholic about hanging out with other alcoholics, it really seemed as my my parents had were raised to believe that those were bad people. Right. So admitting my to myself that I was one of them and that I was going to hang around with them that was a leap for me. I had to I had to really um, embrace some humility. I really had to check my ego at the door and say, you know guess what this is who you are hundred percent look at yourself on paper. this is you. And when I got out of the facility and was able to find a meeting full of wonderful women whose stories were varied, but who at the core, we, you know, understand this addiction and what it's done to our lives. And suddenly you're out. The alcohol isn't a problem anymore. It's not, you know, I said between, you know, other visits to rehab, I wanted to drink. All of a sudden, I really didn't. There was a life of sober people who were being successful and happy and connected. And I did not realize that that was an option. I didn't realize there was a sober life out mm. there that was gonna be so rich um, and so rewarding for me. And I have never considered picking up since then. I and don't have that obsession. how long ago that was that? how
0: long, how long ago? Well,
1: thank you, I just celebrated five years of That's sobriety, right. one day at
0: That's, a time. That is, uh... Nothing to shake a stick at. Is that a saying? I think I just made that one. Up, yeah, no, you can uh, yeah, shake that, your stick that... at my five years. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. um, five years, congratulations. That's a big deal. And, uh, you know, so I've had some some bumps in the road along the way. So uh, I'm sitting here right now going, I want what you have. Uh, <laughs> so, so here I am. And, and you are right, uh, I think, about those uh, about the way those first meetings feel for a lot of us. Not for everybody um but i think for the those of us who are like 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 you and i it sounds like like social people also as you get you think it's going to be this like drab sad melancholy group and you get in there and often it's like a lot of people laughing telling jokes having fun and and it's social like oh my god i'm not going to be by myself uh people are having fun and talking to each other and they're all going to coffee beforehand and going to have coffee afterwards a lot of coffee and cigarettes back uh, yes, around, that's right. Around those uh, meetings. But they're happy. I'm like, oh, my God, it isn't just that I'm going to have like a, a death, a, a life sentence of being bored by myself. No more fun. Yes. So seeing that yeah. fun I, was a big part for me.
1: And I suddenly had to face life without, you know, the the warm blanket of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're left with the the leftovers. You know, it, you take away the medicine and then all you have is the disease. So I don't want to indicate that that wasn't difficult to face those things. But I also, with the help of my fellows, realized I was just really out of practice living as a human.
0: Mm -hmm. I was really
1: out of practice meeting new people and having sober interactions and um and I learned that practicing them again, even if they're a little bit uncomfortable, makes them natural again. I, I you know, I'm no longer afraid to, you know, walk into a party where I don't know anybody. Um, I've I've honed those skills back again, where I can be the kind of silly, fun, engaged person that I am without, um, you know, without the fear of the social anxiety as much. And, you know, sometimes I just social anxiety, we all have it. So what? Yeah, yeah, you feel uncomfortable, but just go.
0: It yep. goes away.
1: Everything goes away eventually.
0: Yes. And I think that's another, like, one of the great uh, fringe benefits of of AA and other 12 step programs is going through those steps uh, means you have had lots of uncomfortable conversations. So nothing is uncomfortable anymore. (laughs) Like the regular social anxiety of like walking into a room and meeting somebody new or speaking in front of a group or Mm -hmm. doing it, like, doing some like thing that's vulnerable it's nothing compared to the conversations I had to have. Yeah. You know, post rehab and in the early recovery and along the way as recently, as you know, a few weeks ago, uh, you know, due to, to, you know, the results of of my actions as an, as an addict, I've had to have the hardest conversations you could have. Uh, And and it it didn't kill you. It didn't kill me. It helped every single time it went way better than i thought it would go and every single time my life got better as a result of those difficult conversations so now it's like oh my god i really don't want to do that i know that means it's a good conversation that i need to have it's going to help me and and it, it just gets easier and easier uh with time
1: that's right and for me the steps of aa and my and my sponsor and the people that i've met um you know, I sort of welcome a little bit of discomfort now because I know what to do with it. I know how to look at the way I'm feeling, um, you know, and how to to remember that it's not forever, to put it in the right place, to kind of look at it with a different perspective and to move through it. And that skill, I mean, I don't have road rage anymore. It's amazing. It's been so helpful in my life in, in general, you know, just to be able to say when I'm feeling this way, why am I feeling this way? And it's okay to feel this way. But if you don't want to keep carrying it, You know, you make the conscious decision to let that bad feeling move on. And, you know, for me that it just, and I said, I was great every day. And I feel like that's why I'm great every day, because I have been given um, a little bit of a roadmap of how to see the glasses half full. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that it is not also half empty, but yeah. I choose to live in a world where it's very half full. And yeah. that probably, um, brings me half, a great deal of serenity.
0: Probably half full because you, you drank the first half already. <laughs> that's
1: right. I drank the other half. <laughs>
0: that's right.
1: That's uh, right. This is all that's left and I'm not touching
0: it. <laughs> good. Leave the Yeah. Leave the rest. In the, that's in right. The that's right. I think so much of what you're saying is like, is really, I think will will ring true for a lot of addicts and alcoholics out there listening but also, again, to the to people who listen, who are family members and loved ones, uh, of addicts and alcoholics, that uh, you can't go. I, it's never safe to say like oh, I have something seems off, but it couldn't be her. She couldn't be yeah. an alcoholic, or he couldn't be an alcoholic. Look, they have a full time job and they're pick, taking their kids to soccer practice. There's no way, right? I I must be. That's right. Right. So it's it's also so it's for us to hear these stories. But for loved ones to go, you're not crazy. You you have that doubt about your about your family member, your loved one. Um, you know, maybe investigate that a little more. Right. Because it it really does happen to everybody. It doesn't yeah. discriminate. It looks different for different people. But uh, it happens to everybody, uh, like you said, of every every walk of life. Um, now, in these past five years uh five plus years now um you have been going to meetings do you have like a home group do you have regular meeting that you go to
1: I do have a home group and I had mentioned that, you know, I've always enjoyed the presence of men, but I so it's I surprised myself by finding that a women's group was really those were my people. Um, I still struggle with vulnerability and making really deep sticky relationships, but I'm also so much more patient with myself and just putting myself in a room with these familiar women who all have these great stories is I, I go on Saturday mornings and it sets me up for the week. The things I hear there resonate in my head all week long. It really sets me up for the way I want to choose to live my life that week. And I'm just incredibly grateful for it. I also travel, um, do some outside sales work. So I'll pick up a meeting here or there if I'm in an interesting town or that, you know, I have an hour to kill. I feel welcome, you know, at every meeting that I go to and have a different experience. And it's just, you know, it's gosh, it's free therapy and it's available all the time. And I just wish I had, you know, been able to, to, um, get comfortable with the idea of being an alcoholic much sooner. And it's interesting because when you, you know, you think about your children and your loved ones, and if they were struggling with something, you would want them to get help for that. You know, you want people to seek the professional help that they need. And for some reason I didn't think I deserved that or that it was, you know, I guess it's the ego that I had to say, I can't do this on my own, but I look back in it now and think, of course you got help. Of course that was the right thing to do.
0: Yep. Um, and you don't want I'm to be a so burden. grateful I, that I, did. I remember I remember thinking like, I don't want to be a burden, you know, like it's going to be burdened yes, if I do that really me being a, a a cocaine addict is a burden. Uh, <laughs> yeah. me spending 30 days away from the house is not a burden
1: not a burden
0: you know to, to save to save my life that's right um so you you just mentioned kids um that's a question i wanted to get to um so our kids are similar age ages um do you talk to them about about your story um and and or about uh alcohol drugs and alcohol in general and about addiction about the the um like genetic predisposition and all that kind of stuff. And what are those conversations like if you have them?
1: I do. Um, I try to be very light about it because, you know, I feel like that was what gave me something to rebel against was, was hearing how bad alcohol was. So I am wary of that. So the kids are very aware that I had a problem with alcohol and I went and got professional help. And that for some reason, my brain is wired in such a way, whether I flipped that switch myself with my behavior or whether it was bound to happen, no matter what, that um, you know, that just is something that does not work for me. And you know, in a way it's like a it's like a shrimp allergy. If you're allergic to shrimp, you don't eat shrimp. Yeah, you it's know, an allergy
0: I- of the the body and the mind, right?
1: Yes, I cannot do alcohol, I know that. So it's off the table for me. Um, You know, I think I will try to teach my children, you know, just to be aware of the signs and to, I can't expect them to live alcohol and drug-free lives completely. I'd love that for them, but that's not a reality. So I think it's just about having that open dialogue and having them feel comfortable knowing that I admitted that I had made mistakes. And And when they make mistakes, they can admit it too.
0: Yeah. And ask for help. You know, uh, I think that's huge. And and like, like all the steps, I think that, you know, the first, the, the lesson to ask for help when you need it is huge, but also at any, at any point, being honest about it, being honest about what you're going through is a healing, it's part of the healing, healing process. Uh, that's right. And there's no, there's never any shame in asking for help. And yeah, that's the tricky part. Cause I, like you mentioned, about talking to your kids, like you don't want them to be like, Look what happened to me when I drank. That's terrible. Don't drink. You, you know, your grandma was an alcoholic. Your grandma was an alcoholic, or whatever. And that that scared straight technique. You're proof positive that that doesn't work. Um, yeah. And so are millions of other other people. Um, so I've been trying to, especially with the, you know, with my son who's, you know, a sophomore to to say, uh, you know, it's basically I understand that it's inevitable, buddy, that you're gonna you're gonna be drinking soon if you're not drinking already and yeah. uh and i just want you to know that i'm here if you want to talk about it um and you should know you need to know that because of me and you know assorted other uh, grandparents and uncles and aunts and cousins uh you are more likely to have the thing that i got than your friend yeah. so that's right keep an eye on it so it doesn't mean don't try it if you know that you should never try or experiment or whatever but when you are experimenting be aware that you might have the thing that put me in jail and yeah. lost my career and ended lots of important relationships for me. Um, that's right. You don't want that. It made me really sick. And it's something that I still have to deal with. So you might have it. You, you're more likely. So, but you might not, you might be able to drink like your mom, <laughs> you know? She, yeah, that's right. She, she's fine. Uh, yeah. But just be aware used- of it. Tell your friends that your dad is a drug addict in recovery. That's okay. Yeah. Don't yes put the stigma away. Throw it away. You don't pretend like if you have a, a parent with diabetes, you don't say, Well, don't don't mention dad's diabetes. You know that's right. <laughs> you, you can say it because it's a it's just it's another disease. And, and that's this is the one we got.
1: For sure. Yeah. And I think I love the phrase wise mind. Um, I am a very dichotomous thinker. Like, you know, I can argue that it's black. I can argue that it's white in the same breath. Um, And just always knowing that gray, gray is the, is where it always is. And I hope that, you know, my children neither feel so terrified of alcohol that they can't enjoy it the way normal people do um, or go off the rails. Like I did, right. There's, there's an in-between somewhere that I hope they settle into that feels social and comfortable and does not have the same um, consequences that we've experienced and hopefully we become great coaches to them and how to navigate that in life having been there
0: yeah and uh, along with that all the other lessons that we learned through those 12 steps about just being a better person it's good for our character outside of the stuff that it might keep us away from the drugs and alcohol that it just makes us better all around I think Yeah. Uh,
1: I've I've learned to unpack so much, you know, just the, the, the irritations of the day. I've just learned to look at them with a different perspective and a different lens and kind of unpack it and be like, well, this part isn't necessary. And that part's beyond my control. And this part is really my own weird way of thinking of it, which I can choose to alter. So, you know, it just, it's so helpful in my everyday life and the way that I, you know, that I'm able to, I don't know. I always say to, to my kids, I go 10,000 feet up and look down and nothing seems quite as big.
0: Absolutely. Quite as important. Yep. It's absolutely nothing. Nothing seems quite as big. That's a great way to look at it. Uh, well, I wish this was like a, a Father's Day episode or something, because I feel like uh, both of our dads would be happy that we're having yeah. this, this conversation with each other today. Um, and I hope <laughs> not on a on a silly note, I hope that one day someone describes me after I'm dead as an old man who enjoyed rollerblading. Yes.
1: Yes. I know. Right. That's where my, that's where my silliness and my craziness came from
0: is (laughs) being willing
1: to try anything once. And if you like it, keep doing it.
0: That's right. Absolutely. Um, All right. So let's get to the last uh, two things I like to do with every guest. Um, uh, The first is to give you a chance to be an influencer with my listeners. Um, At last look, there are people listening or have been at one point or another during the podcast, people listening and, like 20 countries and 40 states. So there they there could be someone in Idaho right now who's looking for a book to read or a show to watch or a movie or whatever. So what would you recommend? Something you've been enjoying lately or or that you would recommend to my audience. I
1: have to say my favorite author of all time is Kelly Corrigan, who's the author of The Middle Place. Um she is to me a shining example of somebody who uses her intellect to um, alter her perspective on life in a way that's full of gratitude, that does not avoid pain, but rather, you know, examines it closely enough that she finds the beauty in it. That is an author who I go back to again and again. And then just because I have an audience, I would like to plug the fact that I had such a hard time journaling. People would say, Journal, you know, write in a journal. And it felt so gross to me and it felt so vulnerable (laughs) and it made me feel so crazy that I started journaling in the third person, like I was writing a book. That was such a game changer for me that I feel like if you have something that you need to process or get out, you write it as though you're writing about a character. And Mm -hmm. when I write about a third person character who hates her husband and wants to, you know, smack (laughs) her kids around and, you know, all these other things, it's not me. It's not me. It's the story. But I can explore the emotions and I can you know, turn it into fiction. If I am feeling creative, that was the biggest game changer for me of all time. And now I can journal because I'm just writing a story.
0: Oh my gosh. So, so I love journaling. It's like, uh, you know, it's something I've, I've done and practiced and, and taught my students to do over the years. Um, and I taught creative writing and, and, and spoken word poetry and English for 15 years. And I never thought of that or heard of that uh, as, as a, as a writing prompt, even, uh, and I think it's genius I mean like to to do if you're struggling with that to write your journal in a third person to do some journal writing yes. and, like reflection in third person is genius and like what you just what you said at the end which I which I was starting to think I like it could turn into a really great piece of fiction also
1: Absolutely. Yes, I can take it anywhere I want. And I enjoy your book so much, Jay. Um, and so I think you understand what that process feels like of telling yeah. your story. Yeah. And it doesn't mean it has to go to print and be shared with everybody. Anybody can write their story. And I found it, I find it incredibly cathartic and uh, right. really enjoyable to write it that way.
0: Right. That's great. And Kelly Corgan, I have not heard of, but now I've got something to look up and it talks about uh, you said um, uh, gratitude is a big part of that. So that gives us right to our, our the last part of the interview where I'll ask you to uh, talk about something that you are grateful for. And then uh, I'll finish off with something that I'm grateful for. And, um, and then we will uh, sign off. So tell me something that you are grateful for today.
1: It's something that i have been enjoying recently um that that i am grateful for as silly as it sounds is the changing of the seasons and nature and it's something that to me is so reliable and so consistent and i just love when i like this winter light is just so amazing to me um just in general, I feel grateful that I live in a place where I get to watch the world go to sleep and then know that it's going to wake up again. And there's such a great, you know, analogy with life that, you know, no winter lasts forever. And I don't think I could live anywhere without the change of seasons and the way it makes me feel and the way it freshens my perspective on things Um and is so reliable
0: yes. that's
1: what i am grateful for and right. i've been spending a lot of time in the woods lately so that's just really I, my happy place i
0: won't ask you why you're spending so much time in the woods because that could be a private matter uh it's me and my dog oh <laughs> just you and your dog Okay, you're not burying bodies. just me and uh, the dog that your woods are you yep we okay. read
1: a book or uh or sit under a tree and it really that's really what recharges me and centers me
0: yeah that's great i agree i'd have to live somewhere with four seasons always uh uh, also the listeners can't can't see this but in the middle of uh Casey talking about her gratitude she picked up her computer and started wandering into a dark room it was like Blair Witch project happening uh and she just kept kept a train of thought and everything kept going (laughs) it's because
1: the dog was barking and I didn't the dog was barking I was trying to get away from the barking dog
0: uh, he wants right. to be on the podcast yeah, and your
1: gratitude, sir.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I'll say right now, I'm especially grateful for um, the guys, uh, uh, the two guys that I work with and uh, and the guy that I work for um, uh, that I've been it's a relatively new job and they've been really great to me and flexible with me through some some hard stuff and uh, and patient with me as I as I learn the ropes of the job. And um my boss is, or boss, well, kind of the guy who g- helped get me the job, who is kind of my boss, I guess it's tricky. Uh, he is also, or he's an alcoholic in recovery who I met in rehab. So it's a connection I made, you know, through this process. And I'm also uh, pretty sure that some of that flexibility comes from him understanding uh, what life is like on this side um, of the disease. So uh, that's I'm awesome grateful for them today. And it uh, feels
1: so good to to acknowledge it, right? It to does. say it out loud, that gratitude. You can feel it, but when you say it out loud, it's
0: it, it really feels
1: like you're underlining it.
0: Absolutely. And, and, and uh, I think that he might be tired of me thanking him, but I'm not going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. I can't wait for other people to hear your story. I feel like I talked too much this time, but... Uh, I feel like we just had so much, we have so much in common in those stories. So I really appreciate uh, you being willing to share and uh, share some of that strength, positivity and hope with, uh, with me and with all the people listening today.
1: Absolutely. We are everywhere. (laughs) Thank you for having me Jay.
0: My pleasure. Well, I don't know about you, I thought Casey's interview was the perfect interview to get us um, re-energized and back into the swing of things here on the podcast, and it certainly left me feeling hopeful and um, full of promise for, for my future in recovery, and I hope um it had the same impact on some of you uh, as addicts and alcoholics in recovery or searching for recovery or loved ones of addicts and alcoholics out there. I hope you listened to Casey and you heard her story and you listened and you could feel the uh, the hope um, that you need to carry on. Um, if that is the case and you did appreciate it as much as I did, then please leave us a review or a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast, Give us those five stars or leave us a review on Apple. Uh, and if uh, you're feeling a little extra generous, please uh, support the podcast with a couple of bucks. Uh, and uh, uh, If you click that support this podcast link at the end of the episode notes on Spotify, you can do that. I would really appreciate it. Um, But either way, thank you all for coming today. I'm just glad you listened. Um, And in the wise, wise words of my Uncle Dave, keep it simple, be humble, and hope for the best. See ya.